Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and on our panel today, we have Josh Adams. Hey. Sophie DiBenedetto. Hi. And our special guest, Andrea Leopardi. Hey, everyone. So, Andrea, thank you for coming and joining us today. Uh, we're, I'm really looking forward to this topic because it's, it's interesting. It's, I've, see, I've, I have no personal experience with it. And so that's one of the things I love to be able to bring people in who can kind of educate me too and, and some of the others in the audience. So, I'm also, so why don't you tell us first what it is, where you work, and kind of what problems you're solving. Um, so I work at a company called community.com, which is solving kind of communication at scale between community leaders and their fans. So it's building tools for people that have that want to build communities um, to it's building, we're building tools to enable them to do that. So essentially um, right now you basically you can text celebrities and you'll join their community and they can text you back. Uh, that's the gist of it right now. So it's a messaging messaging platform, I would say that's the core of it. And that's the problem that we're trying to solve is communication, one-to community communication instead of one-to everyone or one-to-one. So that kind of a way in between one-to-one and one-to everyone. Interesting, yeah. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. And so I know uh, from reading some of the things you've written about this topic, it sounds like you've got a number of different like microservices that are kind of backing all of this and they might even be in different languages. Is that right? It is right. Right now we have, uh, I would say about around 20, that's the order of magnitude, around 20 microservices. Some are micro earth than other, <laughs> uh, than others, but um, we have, yeah, we have a few of them. Most of them are written on Elixir. We're definitely an Elixir company. Um, a few more infrastructure-focused ones are written in Go, and a few more data science-related ones are written in Python, but they all communicate between each other, and um, so that's, that's kind of the, how it's looking right now. Awesome. So I, one of the things that's interesting is how different people and different organizations and teams manage that communication across heterogeneous like source code projects, you know, where you've got Python and Go and Elixir. And so you wrote a blog post, which is a great, uh, great read and people should uh, check that out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, but that's something that you spoke about and I'd love to hear kind of how you guys went about solving that. Yeah, absolutely. So our system is um, evolving very fast. We are pretty young startup. So we started um, with just a couple of services communicating through HTTP mostly. And when we figure out the problems that we had to solve and the scale that we were solving them at, we figured that HTTP between services was not going to work. So we decided to give a try to essentially what would fall under the umbrella of event sourcing. The problem is that some of us had some experience with event sourcing, some of us did not have experience. I did not have any experience with event sourcing in particular. So we very much winged it. 
Um, so we learned a lot of things on the way. Uh, right now, I think we're at a very good point, but essentially how our services are communicating now is through event, like some kind of event sourcing that I don't, I wouldn't, I, I'm afraid to call it event sourcing because I don't really know if this is event sourcing, but some form of like publishing events and consuming events. So the baseline is that when a service does something or creates an entity or wants to inform the rest of the system that something happened, then it will emit a service, uh, sorry, sorry, it will emit an event. And this event gets published on RabbitMQ. So we have RabbitMQ, all our events flow through RabbitMQ and they get published on in a way where subscribers can subscribe to, to events. So, and events can be delivered to multiple services if necessary. So the setup that we have is that if your service does something interesting, it publishes an event about it. And if your service needs to know some information, it can just consume events from different that are published from different services without even actually caring about where, what service they come from. But it just the services can consume events and just do their own thing. And we can do pretty cool stuff with this like system because we, so one thing that we do is that, I mean, it's very, uh, it's a way to build a very available system because if a service goes down, usually you'd, if, especially if it's a consuming service, you don't really have that big of a problem because stuff just gets queued up in RabbitMQ. And as soon as some node for that service goes back up, it will pick the, pick it up and just go about its day. Uh, and it's also, so it's very highly available and it's also pretty uh, easy to build lots of services that communicate with each other because you don't, you don't um, couple the services together, right? Like you have a pretty decoupled architecture where services usually just take care of publishing or consuming. The reality of facts is that most of the time what drives publishing is that because another service needs to know something that something happened, right? So there's a lot of correlation between like this service, like we, we need to know that this event is being published because this other service needs it. But um, so, but, but the, the, the theoretical freedom is there, right? You can actually like have services that are very decoupled. And the other cool thing about this is that we are archiving all of the events. So we're storing them up in a, in a storage. Um, and this allows us to do replays. So it allows us to replay all the events in the history of the company when we screw up. For example, if we like screw up a database or if we lose a Redis, a Redis instance or something, we can just replay all of the events and re, we, we just event source the, the databases or that sort of stuff. And so we can replay events from the beginning of time. And when we spin up a new service, we don't have to care, oh, but this service doesn't have information about this sort of things because it can just go in and replay all services that have ever been published, all events that have ever been published and just build its own like vision of or like its own um, kind of window of what's happening in the system right so this is like it's enabled us to do to move pretty fast and to build like a system where there's a now not too many services or too many engineers but there's like enough parallelization in building stuff that it's like it's very cool that we can do this stuff you know like um without without having to have a lot of lots of points of synchronization between services and between people basically does that make debugging things easier with with the microservices generally i think i think i feel like it would uh, that's absolutely awesome question um it does for sure 100 percent because we have the fact that events are archived um and are queryable makes it super cool because you can see what every service did or every service missed doing you can do like complex queries on the whole event store if you need to and they take a while we do it we do it like the 
kind of big data big data style uh, so they take a while they're not really for uh, like live data but for analytics you can do very cool things where you just query events coming from different services and you can find out if some services misbehaved or mispublishing events or misconsuming events so you have a really good overview of the system and for live debugging it's really cool as well because say you want to listen to some particular event when something is happening then you can just connect to RabbitMQ even from your local box. You just connect to RabbitMQ and you start consuming events. So the, the, in RabbitMQ, we use a kind of a um, fun out type of, uh, of publishing events. So you can get events on multiple consumers, let's say. It's, it's routed based on some criteria, but the general idea is that you can get events on multiple consumers. So you can spin up a consumer locally and just start consuming events and see what's like services that are publishing different events. And we have enough metadata on the events to that we have enough information to be able to debug. Like we know where the, the events come from, which surveys we know when they were published. We know a bunch of information that lets us um, kind of see the system as a whole. So it's, it definitely helps us a lot with debugging. Awesome. Super cool. Um, I think uh, it's interesting that you ask about debugging, Josh, because I think one of the arguments that people make against a system like this is that the added complexity means you lack visibility. It's easier to break things. It's harder to keep things in sync. Um, I think these are all arguments that we've either made and are argued against at various points in our own uh, careers. And so I wanted to kind of bring the conversation around to the blog post that you wrote, Andrea, which touches on exactly one of these challenges, which is keeping message contracts in sync around the world of your system. Uh, how did you solve that problem? So um, um, we use protobuf. I think it's worth mentioning that we use protobuf to exchange the messages, uh, the events, sorry. So every event is encoded with protobuf and uh, protobuf has some positive things and some like hard to deal with things. And for sure, one, one thing that's super hard when you have a system like this is how do I keep the schemas in sync? That's one problem. The other big problem is that I mentioned that we, can, we have to be able to replay all events from the beginning of time. So how do you do schema evolution on this, right? So the first answer um, I will give in a second, how we keep them in sync. How, uh, the second answer is schema evolution. We don't, for now we're just like, just making very, very, like not making breaking changes to the, to the events. We're just trying to keep them as similar as possible because we are, I mean, at the end of the day, we're like, we have to ship features. We have to ship like product stuff so we kind of have like a limited amount of time to think about a lot of things so for now we decided like let's put this on hold because our system is working very well so we will put this on hold for now but and figure out how to do scheme evolution later we have some ideas but for now we're essentially just keeping the same schemas and if you have to add the field you just add it and protobuf is uh, cool because it does the decoding and encoding um, it's very backwards compatible. This is one, like one of the main reasons why we chose it is that it's very backwards compatible. So you can do things, for example, like you can add the field and if you're a service that has an old version of that schema doesn't know about the field, it will not fail. It will still decode the whole schema and ignore the field that it doesn't know about. So it's very, like it's a very backwards compatible format. And that's why we chose one of the main reasons why we chose that. Mm -hmm. And so we deal with that, like with the schema evolution that way. As far as the keeping the schemas in sync, uh, that's mostly what I talk about in the blog post, which is that we use, what essentially we do is we keep a repository um, where we have all the schemas for all of our events. 
so the dot proto files they're they're in they're in a repo and then this repo has code for dedicated to ci like targeted at ci that can build libraries with the compiled schemas for all of the languages that we use so essentially the way that protobuf works is that usually you have you have a tool called proto c like proto compiler and usually you run this proto c and it takes some schemas and it outputs some auto-generated code in the language of choice like if you do proto c dash dash java out it will output like a java file that represents in java the schema that you have in protobuf so in java it can be an object in python it can be an object in elixir it's a struct for example so it's a struct plus some functions to do encoding and decoding right so what we decided to do is that and this is not entirely my idea i talked about with we i talked about this with eric from the elixir core team uh, because they were doing something similar um where he was working at the time so we discussed about this and we figured that like a very cool way to do this that is that again you keep the schemas in a repo and then you generate on ci you generate the code for all the languages that you use you use proceeded to the code generation from the schemas and we publish private libraries on different package managers for all of the languages that we have so for example we have elixir we generate a library we compile the proto schemas into elixir we in ci we shove them in a library that is like a library skeleton essentially we shove them in there and then we run mix hex published in there and we publish it to our private hex um repository on hex so we have four so if you want to use protobuf from elixir you will never have to see the dot proto schemas you just pull the this like events schemas library you just pull this library and you can use it as a normal library it does like it's a dependency of your it's a, like a proper hex dependency of your makes application right and we do the same for python for example exactly the same like we just have a library skeleton we fill it in with the compiled python files for the protobus schemas and we publish it to i think it's gem fury but to like a package manager where we can host private repositories that's what we're interested in mostly and we publish it in there and then python applications can use it from we can just pull the schemas from the package manager Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET, and there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. So, and to keep things in sync, essentially, this, this now becomes cool because if you're backwards compatible, you don't need to keep things in sync. That's the biggest thing, right? Like, since you have a library published on uh, Hex, that has all the versions of the library published on X, you can have many different services and they don't need to be all on the same version of that schema's library, right? Like some, some library may, some service may have a version of the library that's missing an event, but until it, that service needs to deal with that event, we don't really need that service to pull a newer version of the library, right? And since the library versions are immutable, like whenever we update the schemas, we publish a new version of the all the libraries for all the languages, and so you can just your services can pull can pull any version, and they will just be fine. So we don't need to do very strict um, synchronization between versions. And 
I mean, this definitely goes hand in hand with the fact that we don't do breaking changes because otherwise we would have to definitely like try to keep things more in sync. But if you keep, uh, if you stick to not making breaking changes and to only doing additions, then you can essentially pick any version of, if you don't, unless you need an event or unless you need something that is on a newer version of these schemas, then you can stick on your old version and everything is going to work out fine. And this is like a principle that keeps our system together because otherwise it would be a nightmare with the 20 or so services that we have today and that are growing like week by week, you know, so it would be like a mess to try to keep this sane. So um, I hope that answers the question a little bit. So I have to say, oh no, sorry, go ahead. I just had a quick follow-up question. Like uh, just a quick look, uh, I saw there were multiple options for having Elixir protobuf support. Is there a particular library that you found useful that you guys are using? Uh, absolutely. So there is, um, as far as I know, there is two main libraries that I could find when I was doing uh, research. So for what it's worth, I'm, I feel like, like I'm taking credit for, a lot, credit for a lot of things that I'm talking about. This is like, I did contribute to this, but I did not have all these ideas or did not architect this whole system. So this is just a team, team effort. And I, when I got to the company, we were just starting, when I was hired, um, we were just starting to build this event sourced system. And we had picked, before I joined, we had picked a library called xprotobuf that does, that's, it's, it's based on uh, um, another Erlang library that I can't recall the name of. Um, but it's called, it's based on another um, Erlang protobuf library. And essentially that um, the way this xprotobuf um, library works is that it um, compiles the protobuf into Elixir at compile time. So it doesn't use the usual mechanism that most languages use, which is to use proto-c, this little tool that protobuf ships with. Uh, so this little tool called proto-c, it supports plugins. So you as a language developer, you can write a plugin for proto-c so that proto-c will generate uh, your like code for your language, right? So there's like plugins for kind of all languages out there, right? That generate. So you have a common interface and you generate code for different languages. Um, and the xprotobuf library was doing something different and was doing something where you had, where you have the proto schemas included in your Elixir repository, like in your Elixir project, or I mean, you don't even have to include them, but this library was reading the, the proto schema set compile time and generating modules on the fly every time you compile your project, basically. Um, and this, this is fine, but the problem is that it really doesn't play well with the fact that you want to have the schemas in a centralized place to be used by many services, right? And the schemas themselves are not an Elixir project, so it was kind of hard to depend, to, to put them in like an Elixir library and depend on those across all services. So what we ended up, like we, we couldn't have a setup like we have today where we have this, like the repository with all the proto schemas and we don't need to depend on that. You don't need to have the proto schemas available when you're compiling your Elixir service because we already pre-compiled them and uploaded them to Hex. So we couldn't do this with this Hex protobuf library essentially because it needed the protobuf files at compile time when you're compiling your like Elixir code, you needed the proto schema definitions um, available somehow. So we tried for a little bit with like git sub modules to keep the proto schemas distributed everywhere. It did not work like well, like it was not very, very like smooth as an experience. So then I found this, uh, it's called Elix protobuf elixir, protobuf dash elixir. That's the name of the library uh, that we ended up using that I mentioned in my blog post as well. And this library is more conventional, let's say in the protobuf world um, in that it 
provides a plugin for Proto-C. So now in CI, we can just call Proto-C for Python, we can call Proto-C for Elixir, we can call Proto-C for Go, like all the languages that we use, we just call Proto-C in the same way and generate libraries, and then we fill the, these library skeletons that we have and we upload them to the package manager. So that's eventually, the cool thing is that these two libraries have an identical interface from the Elixir side. So they generate structs in the exact same way for the schemas and they generate exactly the same new encode, decode, all these functions that you're, that you're, that we will use when you deal with these uh, schemas. They provide exactly the same interface. So we really, it was really smooth to switch libraries and, um, the only hiccup that we had, we had is that they both like both defined the protobuf module, like in Elixir. So we had to briefly make a fork so that we could call one like temporary protobuf, and we could switch to that one, and then switch back, and then rename the modules. But uh, otherwise, the switch was we didn't have to change basically any code. And um, yeah, so those are the two tools that we use, and we ended up with this one just because it fits better in our in our setup. One thing that I wanted to mention about the uh, syncing of these uh, versions of the schemas across services. We actually, like one idea that I have that we could do is that we can use Dependabot, this tool by GitHub that like loads your, like goes and check dependencies of your project up in Hex. And if there's a new version, it makes a PR to your project and you just have to merge like where with the update, where it just runs, runs make steps update essentially. And you can just go in and merge the PR and deploy. So that's uh, that's what we may end up doing. Is that since since we're very strictly backwards compatible, what we can do is just if there's a new version of this library, update it by like by itself. No, we don't even need to do um, the updates manually. You just get get a PR on all services, and you can just hit merge and ship that that thing. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of leveraging Dependabot, and I was actually going to ask you about that. And as far as GitHub yeah. tooling goes, I was also going to ask if you guys had considered uh, maybe leveraging GitHub Actions now instead of, what is it, Concourse CI? I feel like you could probably get the same workflows going and just manage it all um, yourself that way. Uh, uh, we could use we could use GitHub Actions for sure. Um, the reason why we use Concourse CI is because we have invested a lot in that for our CI infrastructure in general. It, it handles testing for our, like CI. It handles yeah. uh, the generating Docker images that then we deploy. Um, and it, it handles like all sorts of CI duties for us. And we use that also because it's uh, something that we can host and we can host on our VPN, you know, mm -hmm. and so it has access to the things that where it needs access to. And we just, made like the practical decision of not introducing another thing like GitHub Actions and just keep using what we have um, to build the, to build these schemas and to turn them into library and to publish them. So we don't have to, we, we, like it's a simpler setup that where we have just one tool for doing CI in general, that's why. Otherwise, definitely CI, sorry, GitHub Actions would definitely solve the same problem probably in a similar way. Like they can definitely, any CI system I think can be used to, yeah, to sure. do this, essentially the same kind of thing. I wanted to hear more about Concourse CI because uh, I used it like five years ago and then we sort of pivoted from something and stopped using it. And I'm curious if it's uh, more awesome because it was already pretty awesome back then. Concourse CI is um, definitely like a super cool system. I'm very glad that we have some engineers with us that know, knew how to set it up and to host it ourselves and to just 
you know, take care of the, all the operational side because that's um, something I don't like doing too much. So <laughs> I'm glad that it's been set up for us, but uh, it's, it works really, really well. It's really like, it's such a good tool. Um, again, like the reason why we chose it mostly was so that we could host it and we could have like very tight control over it. It could access things in our VPN and all these sorts of stuff. Um, and the way it works is the similar to GitHub actions where you can have pipelines, you can have different things that are triggered by um, different actions. So like you get a PR, you can trigger an action. You get a push to master, you can trigger an action. The tasks complete, you can trigger an action. So it's all based very similar to like most CI systems, I would say. And it's cool because it's um, very flexible. So for us, what it does is that essentially CI, Congress CI itself runs Docker containers. Um, so you give it a Docker container and it will run it and it will just execute the container. But um, we use one trick that we had to use is that now we run Docker in Docker. So there's this, this container called Docker in Docker where it's essentially a, a Docker container that has Docker inside because we kick off the CI and we run everything through Docker Compose for the whole infrastructure of every service. So like services usually need at least RabbitMQ for the, for the event bus where we publish events. So we have to use this Docker in Docker thing, but that makes it super flexible because now we have effectively a CI where you can run anything. And the way we do it usually is that we run uh, Docker Compose to run the infrastructure and then we run the tests for a service and we have concourse. And this is like the, the action that we do as CI, like in, for pull requests and for uh, master pushes. And then we do um, other things with concourse as well. Like for example, when a master build passes, we usually publish, uh, most services publish a Docker image to our private Docker registry. So then we can go in and deploy that, that image. So it's used to do some sort of, uh, we don't do deploys CD yet, but uh, it, we use the CI system for this. And overall, I've been super happy with Congress. And it's cool because we can, we have very tight control over it. We can, we can scale it um, as we need. Uh, it's uh, pretty fast already, but we can just throw more uh, nodes or throw like more powerful nodes at it if we want if we get to have more services and to operate it is very easy. It has some very cool features like every CI run essentially is done in a Docker container and it has ways to attach to those Docker container because it leaves them hanging for a few hours after the CI runs. So when there's a CI failure, for example, you can jump in the container where the CI failed. You can rerun the tests manually. You can see like you know, look at what what's going on this is like huge huge help when you're because you know like how some failures just seem to just show up on ci you know they don't really like like they they're, they're fine on your local box but then on ci everything breaks and this has been incredibly helpful to deal with this sort of issues so like 50 percent of the time that i have a thing that's only broken on ci it's because something somewhere is escaping an environment variable value and that's just impossible to <laughs> debug unless you're on the ci machine so one thing I just want to mention uh, that I'm sure Josh and Andrea both knew, uh, but I didn't, and I'm, maybe a bunch of people don't know this, but Concourse is an open source, you can self-host it kind of solution uh, for a, a CI. And having used in companies, I never had to host it myself, but like Jenkins, where it can be quite complicated, uh, this, this sounds interesting. Uh, partly because you know I work in environments where you do have compliance and you have to uh, be careful about you have to show that you have control over your source code at all these different steps and that no one else has any, can have any influence and be able to inject code in any part of the process, that kind of thing. And so this is just an interesting one because it's like, you could say, well, 
even the CI server is under our control. So that's an interesting one. I hadn't, hadn't uh, seen that one before. I did want to point out, Andrea mentioned that uh, setting it up, he was glad that other people were there to do it. I can confirm that five years ago when I set it up, it took me like a week and it was awful. But there is a Helm chart for it. So if you use Helm, and uh, I think anyone that uses Kubernetes should probably use Helm charts, uh, Helm 3, not Helm 2, uh, then uh, you should just be able to stand it up. And uh, that's, that's fantastic because I guarantee it won't take me a week the next time. Just to make it super clear, I, I, had no, I have no idea if it's complicated to set up. Like I was not, I, I, I'm just glad that someone else even, like I didn't even have to think about that. So it I used to be horrific. Like, yeah, I, like, no, that's what I wanted to speak on is that I don't know if it's still horrible or not. I didn't set it up, so I really don't know how, like, how it was. Uh, but uh, I'm glad that I didn't have to do it anyways, because, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a plus one for teams and other people with other expertise. So, yay. Yeah. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So one other question I had was, uh, you, you were kind of describing the system where these messages were passed and especially that you could monitor and query the different messages out. Uh, I was just wondering, did, was there anything that helped you kind of get an overview, like dashboardy kind of feel of like, what's the throughput of our system? Are there blockages? Can we visualize it? Are you doing anything like that with the system? Um, that's a good question. We're doing a few of those things. For example, um, we have some rudimental insight into the system as a whole. Usually we try to, well, we tend to focus on services more because that's for now, it, like it lets us move faster and just be more localized and teams can do work more freely basically. But um, a few things that we have are, for example, monitoring. It's easy enough to monitor queue lengths so that you can f figure out that there's a service that's not consuming events, for example. Um, so that's like we do that. We all we have all the alerting and monitoring on New Relic, so we have just a New Relic check that goes and just monitors every like very often. It monitors the the length of the queues in RabbitMQ, and it will tell you oh this queue is like ten thousand events, and it probably the service is not consuming those events, right? And we can do the same on the publishing side. Like if we know that the service's usual throughput is say like. 5,000 events, 5, events per minute, we can alert if it has less than 50, like, you know, the normal, like if it's not publishing anything, something is wrong, right? So we have this kind of rudimentary checks. 
Um, it's really like we didn't spend time. This is the reason, the main reason why we don't have an overview of the whole system is that we didn't spend time on this yet. We are starting to um, we are starting to do some work on this. And one thing that we're doing is that one thing that I should have mentioned maybe is that we have a library, internal library that we use for publishing and consuming events. Uh, and since most of our services are in Elixir, it works pretty well because that's kind of like where we can control things like, oh, this event should not be published if it doesn't have this field. Like we can, we can have a little bit more strict checks on the publishing and consuming side. And one cool thing that we did is that uh, in Elixir at compile time, the service needs to declare which, which events is publishing and which events it's consuming at compile time. So that on CI, you can actually write a JSON manifest of like the events that the service is consuming and it's producing. And then at that point, like we can just, this is like, in the early stage of development, let's say. Like we have the thing to write the manifest, but we don't, we're not doing anything with the manifest yet. But the idea is that we can push this manifest up to like S3 or whatever, and then we can have like a front-end app that just goes there, fetches all the JSON files, and you can build a very cool visual, visualization of all these services are publishing these events and then are being consumed by this service and then move on to this. Like you can have a very cool picture of what's going on in the system regarding events that are being published and consumed. So we this kind of system though also gives you the chance to do that empirically right because you can definitely subscribe to the just main RabbitMQ exchange and get all the events that are being published in the system and you can go in there and figure out okay like this events i um like these services are published publishing these events you can do that empirically you can basically measure what's being published and you can build build the visualization of what's who's publishing what uh, but we just didn't spend like m much time doing it yet because it's like a lot of um, work that doesn't bring immediate <laughs> product value. So we tend to prioritize other, other stuff, but this is something we're like kind of working on a little bit on the side. And I think it's going to be, it's going to give you a really good, like it's going to be a very, very cool picture of the whole system with the uh, messages, how the messages flow through the, or the events flow through the whole system. That's awesome. And now I want to build a little thing like that, but in Elm. So thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of want to build a, th a tool to to prototype systems that way. Not necessarily an underlying thing yet. Anyway, that's neat. Well, is there anything else you want to touch on before we transition to picks? Um, I think. I'm, oh, one thing that I want to mention for sure is how. Um, I think a question that's really natural that has been asked is why do you use Elixir for a system like this, right? Because it's a, it's a system where you don't really need to use Elixir. Like you can use any language and it just works, right? Um, well, yes, but on the other hand, so first of all, I think Elixir is a pleasure to write like most of us think is, hopefully. So this is definitely one reason why we use it. But um, we we have a lot of benefit from the fact, from Elixir's resiliency. So our services like really never go down. Like they, they are really stable. And if there's failures, there's like they are very localized. You know, the whole like, resiliency aspect of Elixir that's that's been huge and the concurrency aspect has been huge as well because especially on the consuming side we started using Broadway early on to consume these events so every service now it's been wrapped by this library that we use internally but every service that uses um, that consumes any events uses Broadway under the hood wrapped in a nice thing that we have on top of it uh, but it uses Broadway with the RabbitMQ producer and it's been working fantastic. Like we have back pressure, we have 
we like it deals like for us it does a lot of things for us it does hacking of messages it does like rejection of message of events sorry less hacking of events it does rejection of events when something fails it can you can configure whether they're republished or not and that and the and the back pressure of being amazing and you write very little amount of code to handle events you just mostly configuration to say oh you need to point to these urls for robin queue you need to have this many processes processing message events you need to have blah, blah blah you have all this configuration stuff and then you have a little tiny function that says how to handle an event and that's mostly it and it feels very similar to Phoenix, where you have controllers with an action and you don't care about the fact that, oh, a socket is being opened for that action and the process is being spawned and it's going through the router, blah, blah, blah. You just define a little, like a little snippet, like a little function and action in the controller. And that's where you actually start the work of your application, right? You don't really care about all the mechanics that go into arriving at the point. And it's the same thing for us. You just don't really care about, you just define the routes, which in our case is how, which events you're interested in getting in the service. That's kind of similar to routing in Phoenix, if you want to put it that way. And then you just define a little function that you get and you write code that handles the event. And it's been really good. And the tooling in the Elixir for this has been like really, really supportive. So we really, that's probably one of the main reasons why we're using Elixir. And now we have like a whole Elixir team and the whole bunch of Elixir services. So now it's kind of like makes sense to continue using Elixir, but that was one of the reasons why we started with it. And um, well, we kept using it while we were building, building the system at earlier stages, let's say. I'm really glad you mentioned that because, you know, you do think of like, well, Elixir does really well with larger systems, maybe even distributed systems, message passing and all the resiliency there. And you think, oh, well, with microservices, you could kind of write every service in almost anything. So I love the idea of how you're getting the benefits of Elixir still in just those microservice uh, those scenarios where you're leveraging things like Broadway and concurrency, even within a microservice and the resiliency there. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, we have really tight control over how many processes, for example, process uh, events or how like how much concurrency you have when processing events and when publishing events. Um, so that, that makes real things really easy to use. Um, and I think it like, it fits very well in this environment. And I don't really like, it's not like, yeah, Elixir shines at big systems, but it does very good to think in microservices as well, especially because things like Phoenix, while they have a lot of baggage of concepts, when you actually use them, and if you use them in a simple way, they don't add a lot of complexity nor um, overhead to your system, right? So we have like uh, systems that are pretty, you know, like where you have like, maybe you you have things like Acto, you have like Broadway, you have a lot of stuff, but they are so like they are abstracted enough that it feels like you're writing a really tiny service with a really tiny amount of things in it um even if then like there's a lot of stuff going on maybe maybe under the hood but it still feels like writing a microservice and i think it's a very good fit for that too well this is probably a great place to wrap up that topic let's go to picks josh do you have something you need to share you know normally i do i, I think i'm just going to pick both helm and concourse because uh yeah i can't they're great Nice. Sophie, how about you? I don't have like a specific resource that I want to point to, but over the past couple of weeks, I've been playing around a lot with uh, Elixir and Erlang's telemetry offerings. And almost for the first time ever, I actually started just reading through some of the Erlang source code and feeling like, oh gosh, I'll, I'll never be able to understand this, but it's not certainly not the case. So if you're doing any observability work or if you're interested in it, I would definitely recommend checking out those libraries and don't be shy when it comes to reading some source code. Nice. 
So mine is, uh, is something my brother told me about. It's called a JC Label Maker. So if you happen to be stuck at home for an extended period of time or something, and you kind of think, maybe you can organize some of my space. So here's a little label maker that's really cool because it's small, portable, wireless, and Bluetooth connected. So you actually do all this work on your phone. And so it has a phone app and you can you know, use emojis and things like that and, and print uh, on the little... Uh, stickers and it does thermal printing so it doesn't wipe off uh, and so it can do graphics QR codes stuff like that so it's a more modern version of your traditional label maker so that's it for me on Andre how about you um, my picks are definitely Broadway now that I think about it this is like an amazing tool and I recommend everyone that's doing any kind of pipeline processing of stuff it's a really good tool it lets you write very little code and do very powerful things I think and then my other pick is to exercise at home during this time of quarantine. So if you're quarantined, try to exercise a bit because it's good for the body. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you today. If people want to get in touch with you, follow you, uh, connect with you online, how should they do that? Um, I have a website that's my name and last name.com. So andrealovardi.com. And then I, have, I am on Twitter as whatyouhide. That's my handle. So I'm, or then that you can find email, all the contacts on the website, but usually people write me on Twitter if they have to write me or email is on the website anyways. So that's the best way to reach me. Great. Well, please check out the show notes uh, so you can follow up with these articles and resources. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.